Chapter Three, Part One, of the Formation of Vegetable Molds Through the Action of Worms, with Observations on Their Habits, by Charles Darwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Part One, the amount of fine earth brought up by worms to the surface. Rate at which various objects strewed on the surface of grass fields are covered up by the castings of worms. The burial of a paved path. The slow subsidence of great stones left on the surface. The number of worms that live within a given space. The weight of earth ejected from a burrow, and from all burrows within a given space. The thickness of the layer of mould which the castings on a given space would form within a given time if uniformly spread out. The slow rate at which mould can increase to a great thickness. Conclusion We now come to the more immediate subject of this volume, namely, the amount of earth which is brought up by worms from beneath the surface, and is afterwards spread out more or less completely by the rain and wind. The amount can be judged by two methods, by the rate at which objects left on the surface are buried, and more accurately by weighing the quantity brought up within a given time. We will begin with the first method, as it was the first followed. Near Mare Hall in Staffordshire, quicklime had been spread, about the year 1827, thickly over a field of good pasture land, which had not since been ploughed. Some square holes were dug in this field in the beginning of October 1837, and the section showed a layer of turf, formed by the matted roots of the grasses, one-half inch in thickness, beneath which, at a depth of two and one-half inches, or three inches from the surface, a layer of the lime in powder, or in small clumps, could be distinctly seen running all round the vertical sides of the holes. The soil beneath the layer of lime was either gravelly or of a coarse sandy nature, and differed considerably in appearance from the overlying dark-colored fine mold. Coal cinders, had been spread over a part of the same field, either in the year 1833 or 1834, and when the above holes were dug, that is, after an interval of three or four years, the cinders formed a line of black spots round the holes, at a depth of one inch beneath the surface, parallel to and above the white layer of lime. Over another part of this field, cinders had been strewed, only about half a year before, and these either still lay on the surface, or were entangled among the roots of the grasses. And I here saw the commencement of the burying process, for worm castings had been heaped on several of the smaller fragments. After an interval of four and three-quarter years, this field was re-examined, and now the two layers of lime and cinders were found almost everywhere at a greater depth than before by nearly one inch, we will say by three-quarters of an inch. Therefore, mould, to an average thickness of 0.22 of an inch, had been annually brought up by the worms, and had been spread over the surface of this field. Coal cinders had been strewed over another field, at a date which could not be positively ascertained, so thickly that they formed, October 1837, a layer one inch in thickness at a depth of about three inches from the surface. The layer was so continuous that the overlying dark vegetable mould 
was connected with the subsoil of red clay only by the roots of the grasses, and when these were broken, the mould and the red clay fell apart. In a third field, on which coal cinders and burnt marl had been strewed several times at unknown dates, holes were dug in 1842, and a layer of cinders could be traced at a depth of three and one-half inches, beneath which, at a depth of nine and one-half inches from the surface, there was a line of cinders, together with burnt marl. On the sides of one hole there were two layers of cinders, at two and three and one-half inches beneath the surface, and below them at a depth in parts of nine and one-half, and in other parts of ten and one-half inches there were fragments of burnt marl. In a fourth field two layers of lime, one above the other, could be distinctly traced, and beneath them a layer of cinders and burnt marl at a depth from ten to twelve inches below the surface. A piece of waste swampy land was enclosed, drained, ploughed, harrowed, and thickly covered in the year 1822 with burnt marl and cinders. It was sowed with grass seeds, and now supports a tolerably good but coarse pasture. Holes were dug in this field in 1837, or fifteen years after its reclamation, and we see in the accompanying diagram, figure five, reduced to half the natural scale, that the turf was one half inch thick, beneath which there was a layer of vegetable mould two and one half inches thick. Figure five, legend. Section, reduced to half the natural scale, of the vegetable mould in a field, drained and reclaimed fifteen years previously. A. Turf. B. Vegetable mould without any stones. C. Mould with fragments of burnt marl, coal cinders, and quartz pebbles. D. Subsoil of black peaty sand with quartz pebbles. This layer did not contain fragments of any kind, but beneath it there was a layer of mould, one and one-half inches thick, full of fragments of burnt marl, conspicuous from their red colour, one of which, near the bottom, was an inch in length, and other fragments of coal cinders, together with a few white quartz pebbles. Beneath this layer, and at a depth of four and one-half inches from the surface, the original black, peaty, sandy soil, with a few quartz pebbles, was encountered. Here, therefore, the fragments of burnt marl and cinders had been covered in the course of fifteen years by a layer of fine vegetable mould, only two and one-half inches in thickness, excluding the turf. Six and a half years subsequently, this field was re-examined, and the fragments were now found at from four to five inches beneath the surface. So that, in this interval of six and one-half years, about one and one-half inch of mould had been added to the superficial layer. I am surprised that a greater quantity had not been brought up during the whole twenty-one and one-half years, for in the closely underlying black peaty soil there were many worms. It is, however, probable that formerly, whilst the land remained poor, worms were scanty, and the mould would have then accumulated slowly. The average annual increase of thickness for the whole period is 0.19 of an inch. Two other cases are worth recording. In the spring of 1835, a field which had long existed as poor pasture, and was so swampy that it trembled slightly when stamped on, was thickly covered with red sand, so that the whole surface appeared at first bright red. When holes were dug in this field, after an interval of about two and one-half years, 
the sand formed a layer at a depth of three-quarters of an inch beneath the surface. In 1842, i.e., seven years after the sand had been laid on, fresh holes were dug, and now the red sand formed a distinct layer, two inches beneath the surface, or one and one-half inch beneath the turf, so that on an average point two one inches of mould had been annually brought to the surface. Immediately beneath the layer of red sand, the original substratum of black sandy peat extended. A grass field, likewise not far from Mare Hall, had formerly been thickly covered with marl, and was then left for several years as pasture. It was afterwards ploughed. A friend had three trenches dug in this field twenty-eight years after the application of the marl. Footnote. This case is given in a postscript to my paper in the Transactions of the Geological Society, Volume 5, page 505, and it contains a serious error, as in the account received I mistook the figure 30 for 80. The tenant, moreover, formerly said that he had marled the field 30 years before, but was now positive that this was done in 1809, that is, 28 years before the first examination of the field by my friend. The error, as far as the figure 80 is concerned, was corrected in an article by me in The Gardener's Chronicle, 1844, page 218. End of footnote. And a layer of the marl fragments could be traced, at a depth, carefully measured, of 12 inches in some parts, and of 14 inches in other parts. This difference in depth depended on the layer being horizontal, whilst the surface consisted of ridges and furrows, from the field having been ploughed. The tenant assured me that it had never been turned up to a greater depth than from six to eight inches, and as the fragments formed an unbroken horizontal layer from twelve to fourteen inches beneath the surface, these must have been buried by the worms, whilst the land was in pasture, before it was ploughed, for otherwise they would have been indiscriminately scattered by the plough throughout the whole thickness of the soil. Four and a half years afterwards, I had three holes dug in this field, in which potatoes had been lately planted, and the layer of marl fragments was now found thirteen inches beneath the bottoms of the furrows, and therefore probably fifteen inches beneath the general level of the field. It should, however, be observed that the thickness of the blackish sandy soil, which had been thrown up by the worms above the marl fragments in the course of thirty-two and one-half years, would have measured less than fifteen inches if the field had always remained as pasture, for the soil would in this case have been much more compact. The fragments of marl almost rested on an undisturbed substratum of white sand with quartz pebbles, and as this would be little attractive to worms, the mould would thereafter be very slowly increased by their action. We will now give some cases of the action of worms on land differing widely from the dry, sandy, or swampy pastures just described. The chalk formation extends all round my house in Kent, and its surface, from having been exposed during an immense period to the dissolving action of rainwater, is extremely irregular, being abruptly festooned and penetrated by many deep well-like cavities. Footnote. These pits or pipes are still in the process of formation. During the last forty years I have seen or heard of five cases, in which a circular space, several feet in diameter, suddenly fell in, leaving on the field 
an open hole with perpendicular sides, some feet in depth. This occurred in one of my own fields, whilst it was being rolled, and the hinder quarters of the shaft horse fell in. Two or three cartloads of rubbish were required to fill up the hole. The subsidence occurred where there was a broad depression, as if the surface had fallen in at several former periods. I heard of a hole which must have been suddenly formed at the bottom of a small shallow pool, where sheep had been washed during many years, and into which a man thus occupied fell to his great terror. The rain-water over this whole district sinks perpendicularly into the ground, but the chalk is more porous in certain places than in others. Thus, the drainage from the overlying clay is directed to certain points, where a greater amount of calcareous material is dissolved than elsewhere. Even narrow open channels are sometimes formed in the solid chalk. As the chalk is slowly dissolved over the whole country, but more in some parts than in others, the undissolved residue, that is, the overlying mass of red clay with flints, likewise sinks slowly down and tends to fill up the pipes or cavities. But the upper part of the red clay holds together, aided probably by the roots of plants, for a longer time than the lower parts, and thus forms a roof, which sooner or later falls in, as in the above-mentioned five cases. The downward movement of the clay may be compared with that of a glacier, but is incomparably slower, and this movement accounts for a singular fact, namely, that the much elongated flints, which are embedded in the chalk, in a nearly horizontal position, are commonly found standing nearly or quite upright in the red clay. This fact is so common that the workmen assured me that this was their natural position. I roughly measured one which stood vertically, and it was of the same length and of the same relative thickness as one of my arms. These elongated flints must get placed in their upright position on the same principle that a trunk of a tree left on a glacier assumes a position parallel to the line of motion. The flints in the clay, which form almost half its bulk, are very often broken, though not rolled or abraded, and this may be accounted for by their mutual pressure, whilst the whole mass is subsiding. I may add that the chalk here appears to have been originally covered in parts by a thin bed of fine sand, with some perfectly rounded flint pebbles, probably of tertiary age, for such sand often partly fills up the deeper pits or cavities in the chalk. End of footnote. During the dissolution of the chalk, the insoluble matter, including a vast number of unrolled flints of all sizes, has been left on the surface, and forms a bed of stiff red clay, full of flints, and generally from six to fourteen feet in thickness. Over the red clay, wherever the land has long remained as pasture, there is a layer a few inches in thickness of dark-colored vegetable mold. A quantity of broken chalk was spread, on December 20, 1842, over a part of a field near my house, which had existed as pasture, certainly for thirty, probably for twice or thrice as many years. The chalk was laid on the land, for the sake of observing at some future period, to what depth it would become buried. At the end of November 1871, that is, after an interval of twenty-nine years, a trench was dug across this part of the field, and a line of white nodules could be traced on both sides of the trench, at a depth of seven inches from the surface. The mold, therefore, excluding the turf, had here been thrown up at an average rate of point two two inches per year, 
beneath the line of chalk nodules there was in parts hardly any fine earth free of flints while in other parts there was a layer two and one quarter inches in thickness in this latter case the mould was altogether nine and one quarter inches thick and in one such spot a nodule of chalk and a smooth flint pebble both of which must have been left at some former time on the surface were found at this depth at from eleven to twelve inches beneath the surface the undisturbed reddish clay full of flints extended the appearance of the above nodules of chalk surprised me much at first as they closely resembled water-worn pebbles whereas the freshly broken fragments had been angular but on examining the nodules with a lens they no longer appeared water-worn for their surfaces were pitted through unequal corrosion and minute sharp points formed of broken fossil shells projected from them it was evident that the corners of the original fragments of chalk had been wholly dissolved from presenting a large surface to the carbonic acid dissolved in the rainwater and to that generated in soil containing vegetable matter as well as to the humus acids footnote s w johnson how crops feed eighteen seventy page one hundred and thirty nine end of footnote the projecting corners would also relatively to the other parts have been embraced by a larger number of living rootlets and these have the power of even attacking marble as Sachs has shown thus in the course of twenty-nine years, buried angular fragments of chalk had been converted into well-rounded nodules. Another part of this field was mossy, and as it was thought that sifted coal cinders would improve the pasture, a thick layer was spread over this part either in 1842 or 1843, and another layer some years afterwards. In 1871 a trench was here dug, and many cinders lay in a line at a depth of seven inches beneath the surface, with another line at a depth of five and one-half inches, parallel to the one beneath. In another part of this field, which had formerly existed as a separate one, and which it was believed had been pasture land for more than a century, trenches were dug to see how thick the vegetable mould was. By chance, the first trench was made at a spot where at some former period certainly more than forty years before a large hole had been filled up with coarse red clay flints fragments of chalk and gravel and here the fine vegetable mould was only from four and one-eighth to four and three-eighth inches in thickness in another and undisturbed place the mould varied much in thickness namely from six and one-half to eight and one-half inches beneath which a few small fragments of brick were found in one place. From these several cases, it would appear that during the last twenty-nine years mould has been heaped on the surface at an average annual rate of from point two to point two two of an inch. But in this district, when a ploughed field is first laid down in grass, the mould accumulates at a much slower rate. The rate also must become very much slower after a bed of mould, several inches in thickness, has been formed for the worms then live chiefly near the surface, and burrow down to a greater depth, so as to bring up fresh earth from below, only during the winter when the weather is very cold, at which time worms were found in this field at a depth of twenty-six inches, and during summer when the weather is very dry. A field which adjoins the one just described slopes in one part rather steeply, viz. at from ten degrees to fifteen degrees, 
This part was last ploughed in 1841, was then harrowed and left to become pasture land. For several years it was clothed with an extremely scant vegetation, and was so thickly covered with small and large flints, some of them half as large as a child's head, that the field was always called by my sons the stony field. When they ran down the slope, the stones clattered together. I remember doubting whether I should live to see these larger flints covered with vegetable mould and turf, but the smaller stones disappeared before many years had elapsed, as did every one of the larger ones after a time, so that after thirty years, 1871, a horse could gallop over the compact turf from one end of the field to the other, and not strike a single stone with his shoes. To anyone who remembered the appearance of the field in 1842, the transformation was wonderful. This was certainly the work of the worms, for though castings were not frequent for several years, yet some were thrown up month after month, and these gradually increased in numbers as the pasture improved. In the year 1871, a trench was dug on the above slope, and the blades of grass were cut off close to the roots, so that the thickness of the turf and of the vegetable mould could be measured accurately. The turf was rather less than half an inch, and the mould, which did not contain any stones, two and one-half inches in thickness. Beneath this lay coarse, clayey earth full of flints, like that in any of the neighbouring ploughed fields. This coarse earth easily fell apart from the overlying mould when a spit was lifted up. The average rate of accumulation of the mould during the whole thirty years was only 0.083 inch per year, i.e. nearly one inch in twelve years, but the rate must have been much slower at first, and afterwards considerably quicker. The transformation in the appearance of this field, which had been effected beneath my eyes, was afterwards rendered the more striking when I examined in Knoll Park a dense forest of lofty beech-trees, beneath which nothing grew. Here the ground was thickly strewed with large naked stones, and worm-castings were almost wholly absent. Obscure lines and irregularities on the surface indicated that the land had been cultivated some centuries ago. It is probable that a thick wood of young beech-trees sprung up so quickly that time enough was not allowed for worms to cover up the stones with their castings, before the site became unfitted for their existence. Anyhow, the contrast between the state of the now miscalled stony field, well stocked with worms, and the present state of the ground beneath the old beech trees in Knoll Park, where worms appeared to be absent, was striking. A narrow path running across part of my lawn was paved in 1843 with small flagstones set edgeways, but worms threw out many castings and weeds grew thickly between them. During several years the path was weeded and swept, but ultimately the weeds and worms prevailed, and the gardener ceased to sweep, merely mowing off the weeds, as often as the lawn was mowed. The path soon became almost covered up, and after several years no trace of it was left. On removing in 1877 the thin overlying layer of turf, the small flagstones, all in their proper places, were found covered by an inch of fine mould. Two recently published accounts of substances strewed on the surface of pasture land, having become buried through the action of worms, may be here noticed. The Reverend H. C. Key had a ditch cut in a field over which coal ashes had been spread, as it was believed, eighteen years before, 
and on the clean-cut perpendicular sides of the ditch, at a depth of at least seven inches, there could be seen, for a length of sixty yards, quote, a distinct, very even, narrow line of coal ashes, mixed with small coal, perfectly parallel with the top sward. End quote. Footnote. Nature. November 1877. Page 28. End of footnote. This parallelism and the length of the section give interest to the case. Secondly, Mr. Dancer states, footnote, Proceedings of the Philosophical Society of Manchester, 1877, page 247, end of footnote, that crushed bones had been thickly strewed over a field, and, quote, some years afterwards, end quote, these were found, quote, several inches below the surface, at a uniform depth, end quote. The Reverend Mr. Zinke informs me that he has lately had an orchard dug to the unusual depth of four feet. The upper eighteen inches consisted of dark-colored vegetable mold, and the next eighteen inches of sandy loam, containing in the lower part many rolled pieces of sandstone, with some bits of brick and tile, probably of Roman origin, as remains of this period have been found close by. The sandy loam rested on an indurated ferruginous pan of yellow clay, on the surface of which two perfect celts were found. If, as seems probable, the celts were originally left on the surface of the land, they have since been covered up with earth, three feet in thickness, all of which has probably passed through the bodies of worms, excepting the stones, which may have been scattered on the surface at different times, together with manure or by other means. It is difficult otherwise to understand the source of the eighteen inches of sandy loam, which differed from the overlying dark vegetable mould, after both had been burnt, only in being of a brighter red colour, and in not being quite so fine-grained. But on this view, we must suppose that the carbon and vegetable mould, when it lies at some little depth beneath the surface, and does not continually receive decaying vegetable matter from above, loses its dark colour in the course of centuries. But whether this is probable I do not know. Worms appear to act in the same manner in New Zealand as in Europe, for Professor J. von Haast has described footnote, Transactions of the New Zealand Institute, Volume 12, 1880, page 152, end of footnote, a section near the coast, consisting of mica schist, quote, covered by five or six feet of loose, above which about twelve inches of vegetable soil had accumulated, end quote. Between the loess and the mould, there was a layer from three to six inches in thickness, consisting of, quote, cores, implements, flakes, and chips, all manufactured from hard basaltic rock, end quote. It is therefore probable that the aborigines, at some former period, had left these objects on the surface, and that they had afterwards been slowly covered up by the castings of worms. Farmers in England are well aware that objects of all kinds left on the surface of pasture-land, after a time disappear, or, as they say, work themselves downwards. How powdered lime, cinders, and heavy stones can work down, and at the same rate through the matted roots of a grass-covered surface, is a question which has probably never occurred to them. Footnote. Mr. Lindsay Carnegie, in a letter, June 1838, to Sir C. Lyle, remarks that Scotch farmers are afraid of putting lime on ploughed land 
until just before it is laid down for pasture, from a belief that it has some tendency to sink. He adds, quote, Some years since, in autumn, I laid lime on an oat stubble and ploughed it down, thus bringing it into immediate contact with the dead vegetable matter, and securing its thorough mixture through the means of all subsequent operations of fallow. In consequence of the above prejudice, I was considered to have committed a great fault, but the result was eminently successful, and the practice was partially followed. By means of Mr. Darwin's observations, I think the prejudice will be removed. End, quote. End of chapter 3, part 1